Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Quick, before I introduce our guest, could you please pause the show and then in your podcast app, give a rating and review to the Best Interest Podcast. Why? Because the best interest, it's a growing small business, and I want to keep making this content for people just like you. A rating and a review, it lets all those fancy algorithms know that you care about this podcast. And I know I'm asking for your time, I'm asking for your effort, and I know that you don't owe me anything. So I really appreciate those of you who decide to sacrifice that time and effort to leave that rating and review. Thank you, guys. So with that... Let's go meet our guest. My guest today is a lawyer from Greater Denver, Colorado, who lives with his wife and two elementary school-aged children. And that makes him different than some other fire disciples we've had on the podcast who don't have kids. So that's something we will touch on today. He's quite verbose on Twitter, very entertaining all the time, and very educated on personal finance and investing principles. So I'm excited to pick his brain today. He is the Landshark. Landshark, how you doing, my man? I'm doing great, except for the fact that you think I'm verbose. That, uh, that hurts. I mean, I think that's a good thing, right? You're good with words. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's got a negative connotation. I don't know. I don't know. Verbose means you use a lot of words, man. <laughs> you're you're concise. How about that? Is that a better? I, I don't know. I try to be intentional, but then again, you know, sometimes it's just diarrhea of the mouth, right? You just whatever comes out. That's probably me being verbose and using the wrong word for you. Let's be honest. That's, <laughs> that's some irony right there. That's some sad irony. Um, well, Landshark, thank you for being here. And I think a great place to start, at least it's my curious question, is what, what is a Landshark? Where did the name come from? I mean, how, how did you get this brand? So I'm going to answer with a joke, if that's okay. Yeah. So why don't sharks eat lawyers? I don't know. Professional courtesy. (laughs) So it's not a very good joke, but yeah, lawyers are sometimes referred to as sharks. And when I was thinking about possible names for a a Twitter handle, I didn't want to just be some nondescript generic financial this or fi that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I was trying to think of something interesting and different. Uh, I'm land-based, so uh, so there you have it. And it is a classic Saturday Night Live skit. If you've if you've never seen it, you should uh, look it up on YouTube. The Land Shark with uh, Dan Aykroyd back from the '70s. So it was pretty good. I will look that up. I, I will make sure to look that up. I'll link it in the show notes even. Um, well, one thing I, I did want to pick your brain on here is just a little bit about your your personal finance and investing story, because as I alluded to in the intro. You know, you talk about financial independence and retiring early a lot, but unlike some other people we've had on the podcast, you have, you have some kids. So maybe, you know, how does that play into everything? How'd you get started really talking about personal finance and investing to others? What's your, what's your background? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure uh, why or how I fit into the financial independence space online. Um, 
you know, I've been lurking in the FI space for a long time now. Um, and as you said earlier, I am a lawyer um, and I didn't see a lot of lawyers really sharing their stories online. Certainly saw a lot of doctors, saw a lot of engineers, a lot of other professions, but I just, I, I never really saw a lot of lawyers, not saying that there are none, but I just, I didn't see many. Um, I also just wanted to add my voice to the space and have some fun at the same time. So, you know, I'm in my early forties, uh, as you said in the intro, I'm a husband and father of two elementary school age kids. I've been practicing law for about two decades now, almost. And, you know, the law is an interesting profession. You know, at times it can be intellectually stimulating. You know, I get to work on some really interesting cases, complex cases with clients who are doing really remarkable things. But the flip side of that is it's also extremely stressful. So, you know, I'm pretty much always on call. And, you know, the business model for practicing law at a law firm is, you know, we bill our time. So we're literally trading our time for money. And, you know, I've known for some time now that, you know, I wasn't going to be one of those lawyers who practices well into my 60s, 70s, or 80s. You know, there's plenty of lawyers that, you know, they're the gray hairs walking around the office and they've been doing mm -hmm. this forever and they're going to do it to the day that they die. So for me, the law was always a means to an end. Um, you know, it pays well. And I've always been pretty careful about saving and investing. And, you know, so when I was in my 20s, I was kind of dabbling a little bit in stock picking and, um, but about, you know, 10 years ago, that's when I started getting really serious. Um, and it really came with becoming a father, right? So that's kind of like the, the light bulb moment when I was just like, all right, I got to start getting real, real and serious. So I started reading a lot of investment books. Um, I stumbled upon the Bogleheads Forum. I don't know if you've ever checked out the Bogleheads Forum, but, um, you know, those forums are just full of really great information. And that was a real eye opener for me. And, you know, at that point in time, I became convinced that I shouldn't try to beat the market because I wasn't smart enough to do so. Uh, but instead, I should just try to keep fees low, invest in broad-based index funds and capture the market's return and just invest regularly and aggressively for the long term. And, you know, it was through that, you know, the Bogleheads Forum that, you know, that's when I eventually stumbled upon the FIRE community. Because like before that, you know, I wasn't sure what I was saving for. I was just saving because that's what we were told to do, right? Let's go save for retirement. Sure. Um, and that concept was kind of ambiguous, right? Like save for retirement. Well, what exactly does that mean? I didn't really understand when I would be retiring or how much I would need to retire, you know, but ultimately I had a family and I was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with the grind that is, you know, working as a lawyer and I wanted out. And, you know, once COVID hit, and we found ourselves, you know, working from home, I got to spend so much more time with my kids that I decided that, you know, that was way more important to me than any amount of money that I could earn from a job. So I, I made the decision that I was going to retire as soon as possible. Excellent. Thank you for that background, a really cool background. Uh, Bogleheads Forum, you mentioned the Bogleheads Forum. I've spent some time on the Bogleheads Forum. For listeners who don't know, that's John Bogle, right? The founder of Vanguard and his Absolutely. followers are called. Bogleheads, or they call themselves Bogleheads. So the Bogleheads Forum, I mean, could you just give us a one minute description of, of what's on there, what the people are like, what they're talking about, and, you know, what you learned from the Bogleheads? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty diverse forum, but I mean, it's it's a lot of, uh, you know, frankly, retirees who are, uh, their hobby is finance and investing. And so one of the things that they'll do is uh, you can post your portfolio to them, and then they will give you their advice as to how you can fix it. So, you know, 10 years ago, I posted my, you know, this is what my 401k portfolio looks like and my wife's 401k. And they said, okay, you should sell these funds and, and 
by VTSAX or, or, you know, and, and if you didn't have those options, they would give you kind of the next best choice in, in their opinion. So, you know, based on their advice, uh, they really subscribe to like the three fund portfolio, which is, you know, a, a combination of uh, a broad-based U.S. stock index fund, a broad-based international stock index fund, and then a broad-based bond portfolio. And basically by com combining those three portfolios, you can have everything you really need uh, going forward to have a successful investment um, career. Right. Is that a, is that a three fund portfolio that you subscribe to in your, in your own investing life or has it evolved over time? You know, I did for a while. Um, but right now I'm actually, um, I've deviated from the three fund portfolio. Most of my, my asset allocation is basically entirely equities. It's probably a little riskier than I should, but I don't own any bonds. I also sold out of my international position. So I'm hundred percent us, uh, equities, VTSAX and, you know, we own our home outright. So I kind of view that as our bond position. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really simple. I've got a little bit of individual stocks here and there, a couple additional funds um, that, you know, are kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Most of it is just BTSAX. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, those individual stocks that you own, is that just kind of play money on the side to kind of test yourself? Or, or do you have like a strong conviction in those companies in particular? What, what drove you to those stocks? Uh, you know, honestly, that is, it's more like entertainment than anything yeah. else, right? It's like less than 1% of our portfolio and a little dabbling, you know, here and there to see like, oh, can I actually do some stock picking? But I'm not putting real money on the line in the grand right. scheme of things, right. right? I'm just, you know, buying a couple of things here and there. And and it's nothing that would be uh, uh, unusual or unheard of, right? Like there's the Amazons and Facebooks and the the Googles and you know, the Apples, you know, those types of tech companies generally so gotcha gotcha so it's, it's like putting ten dollars on the football game just makes things a little more interesting put some, some sure. skin in the yeah. game just kind of yeah add some fun to the experience okay you mentioned you mentioned some books earlier you mentioned you know right around that time maybe where you found the bogleheads you had kids yet the light bulb went off started reading some books what were some of the most influential personal finance investing books that you you still go back to yeah, so the Bogleheads Guide on Investing is fantastic. Um, JL Collins' Simple Path to Wealth is is probably the best book that you could you could read. Um, but then there's you know some other classics. You know, uh, Jack Bogle himself has a number of uh, investing books: Bogle on Mutual Funds, you know, Common Sense on Mutual Funds. Um, Burton Malkiel's uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street is a classic. Um, William Bernstein, The Four Pillars of Investing, is fantastic. So um, there's a Another one uh, is The Coffee House Investor was another mm -hmm. uh, book. It's by uh, a guy named Skultis, is, I think yep. his last name. Yep. Um, yeah, so th there's there's a number of them. Uh, all of them kind of share that kind of uh, uh, appreciation for not trying to beat the market and just trying to match the market and keeping your your index, uh, your, your fees low, right? And investing in broad-based index funds. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah. But the one I recommend to, to everybody is the simple path to wealth. I mean, that's, it's so easy to understand and straightforward and, you know, JL Collins is such an amazing author. You know, he's, he's a great writer. Um, and, you know, for, for somebody starting out, I mean, you, you can't beat that one. You might convince me to finally go get my copy. That's, that's probably the number one book in terms of the Venn diagram of uh, highly recommended, but that I have not read. That, that Simple Path of Wealth is probably the, the top book in there. You know, it's kind of funny because when, when my kids were really young, um, you know, there was a, a point in time where uh, we couldn't get them to nap 
unless we were with them, right? So mm -hmm. we had to kind of like be in bed with them. And, uh, you know, so they would take naps and I would just have my phone there and I would just start kind of reading Jim Collins's blog. And so his stock series is basically what turned into the simple path to wealth. So I read his stock series on my phone while my kids were napping next to me. And, you know, that was kind of like the genesis of, of everything for me in terms of understanding you know, index fund investing and, and you know, uh, you know, just kind of had to build my, my overall philosophy of investing. And then once he came out with the book, I reread re it, um, recognized a lot of it from the stock series itself, but it just kind of organized it a little and, uh, you know, cleaned it up and it's, it's fantastic, but, you know, either way, read the stock series or read the book. You can't go wrong. Excellent. I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes for the readers and, and a few of the other books you recommended too. Uh, let's talk real quick. In your Twitter profile, you, you describe yourself as a financially independent land shark who hates debt. So let's talk about debt. And, and maybe we can start with uh, coming out of law school. Did you face the proverbial kind of law school, med school, grad school debt that, that other people write about? You know, I had some, but I was pretty fortunate that I didn't have like the crushing debt that others had. I was, I had a, a full scholarship to undergrad. Uh, so I graduated college without any debt. And then when I went to law school, I had about two thirds of it paid through scholarships. So I graduated with about $40,000 in debt, um, which was manageable. Um, you know, it was certainly not insignificant, but, you know, I was able to take care of that relatively quickly, kind of before my kids were born. And that was kind of like the, the motivator for us was, and I didn't like the idea that I was going to be, you know, it was, it was on a 20 year term. I didn't like the idea that I would be saving for my kids college or putting my kids through college while I was still paying off my own law school debt. So uh, I paid that down um, right around the time that they were born and, you know, moved forward from there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so to this, I mean, were there other debt instruments that you took on along the way, whether it's, you know, I don't know, car loan, mortgage, other stuff like that, or have you always been pretty against it? You know, we, um, we had a car loan on our 2006 uh, Subaru, which we still drive today. Um, but we had 0% financing for two years and paid it off in two years. Uh, yep. So that was free money. So, um, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm an idiot about that. I'll, I'll take free money if I can get it. But, um, you know, just the past two, three years, uh, we, we paid down our house. And so we own our house out right now. Um, we recognize that that may not necessarily be the optimal financial decision from just a dollars and cents perspective, but from a peace of mind perspective, we love the fact that we own our house outright and that we're not paying, you know, three, 4,000 bucks a month to the bank every month. Right. Psychology versus math is the, the never ending argument in this space. And right, there's no right answer because that's why they call it personal finance, personal finance. It's all up to individuals' choices. And so what you're saying there, Landshark, if, if, I, if I'm understanding it right, is yeah, you probably could have taken some of that extra money, put it in BTSAX and made 15% a year in the last five years on it. Instead, you paid down maybe a three or four or 5% loan. So mathematically, okay, in, in hindsight, 2020 hindsight wasn't the optimal choice, but you feel great about the fact that you own your house outright. That's amazing. And so it's such a peace of mind fact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got no regrets with, with paying it down. And, you know, I mean, the, the flip side of it is, you know, in hindsight, yeah, we, we know what the returns of the market are. Um, but five, 10 years ago, we didn't, right? And the market could have easily done something different. And paying on a, a guaranteed rate of return to, to reduce that debt level uh, would have been a really smart decision. So, you know, either way, I don't regret it. 
uh, at all. There's no chance that I would, um, you know, take out and cash out the equity in our house to, to do some investing, like having, having that paid off and knowing that our cash flow is that much better on a month to month basis, you know, that's enabling us to retire early because we're not going to have that eating away at our, our monthly expenses. Right. And, and just knowing your story, knowing where you stand today, you were probably also investing quite a nice sum of money every month in addition to paying down your mortgage early, right? It's not, it's not like you weren't investing at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were, um, I don't think we were maxing out our 401ks and, and Roth IRAs um, the entire time that we could have, you know, in, in hindsight, we probably could have gone back and invested more, but, you know, we have been saving aggressively uh, for a very long time now. And, you know, one of the things that paying down the mortgage allowed us to do is it really instilled the discipline of saving massively, right? So what we what we did is we took out a 15-year loan and we paid it off in about five years. And, you know, on our house, you know, we had a $400,000 mortgage. So paying that off in five years, that's a lot of money to pay back relatively quickly. Now, we were fortunate that we were making good money. So we had the ability to do that. But once we paid off our mortgage, you know, we were paying... 5,000 bucks a month towards our mortgage. And then when we would have some bonuses come in through some extra cash, we'd throw that at the principal. When we paid off that mortgage, all of a sudden, you know, we had $5,000 a month that we were not spending, that we just kept allocating towards our investments. So now like $60,000 goes to our taxable brokerage account every single year. And it doesn't bother us because we're used to spending it. You know, and it so it, it allowed us to kind of avoid lifestyle inflation because we were just used to not having that money around for, you know, buying toys and, you know, buying new cars and clothes and whatever it is. Right. But yeah, I mean, to your, to your, to your question, Jesse. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it wasn't a either or scenario. We were, we were certainly saving um, while we were paying down the mortgage. We, uh, the paying down the mortgage kind of gave us the discipline to save even more aggressively than I think we, we would have, because I was a little bit of a spender actually, before we kind of got onto this, you know, FI uh, journey that we were on, you know, I was definitely more prone to go out and, you know, pick up a bar tab with my friends and, and not really think about it and, mm -hmm. you know, go out and, you know, buy some toys and not really thinking about it, you know, go do, do whatever. Um, and, you know, this instilled discipline, and, you know, for people who are very disciplined in and of themselves, um, maybe they don't need it. But for, for me, I kind of needed to have that regular payment that I knew that was going to pay down the mortgage uh, to then kind of drive us forward, if that makes sense. It does make sense. That does make sense. And I'm sure that the, the fact that the payment, the mortgage payment was probably automatic, or maybe you had set it up automatically. And then now you're investing, if I had to guess, might be automatic withdrawals. The fact, I mean, it almost makes discipline easier for you in that way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's why, you know, listen to the Nobel Prize winners, right? Listen to the, the Richard Thalers and the Danny Kahnemans of the world from the behavioral economics field who say, automate your finances, right? yeah. reduce the friction, set yourself up for success by putting money in your 401k automatically, investing that money automatically, it's the way to go. Well, David um, Box, you know, the automatic millionaire. I don't know if you've ever read that one. I but do know I mean, David Bach. He's also the, he's one of the latte factor guys, right? Or he yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And so that was the latte factor, I believe, uh, first appeared in the automatic millionaire. And I think okay. the automatic okay. millionaire came out sometime in the mid 2000s. Um, he he re, uh, revised it a, a couple of years ago, but it's a great book. And it's really simple. It's another one of those kind of 
seminal uh, personal finance books, but basically, you know, he always talks about the idea of just automating your finances, um, you know, paying yourself first and then just set it and forget it and let it take care of itself. And, you know, for me, um, you know, kind of learning to automate our, you know, IRA and 401k contributions and our mortgage payments, and then just learning to live on what was left, uh, you know, then we didn't allow ourselves to succumb to lifestyle inflation because we had a smaller kind of amount of money left over each month because so much of it was already spoken for. And I think that that's the easiest way to kind of guarantee your success. And, and one of the things that, that we did is, you know, we were probably more aggressive in terms of, you know, what the target that we set for, you know, paying down the mortgage, you know, that $5,000 a month, that's probably a little more than we could afford, honestly, at the, mm -hmm. at the time that we did it. But we just said, it, and we're like, you know what, we'll make it work. And we made it work. Um, and, you know, there was a couple of months when it was like, it was a little tight. It was, it was difficult. Um, but it's just, it's sometimes you can, you can fool yourself into uh, instilling, you know, this discipline to save more so than you actually think you can. Right. Set the bar high and yeah. you'll probably find a way to adapt. And exactly. I, that's actually, that's particularly um, impressive coming from a shark who really hasn't evolved in like 400 million years. Well, we're the perfect species, right? You're just, you know, <laughs> we're just all cartilage. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about your fire plans. Now I'm particularly interested in, in, you know, are you using the 4% rule to plan out your retirement or, or are you, are you using like what, what kind of math is kind of going into your long-term retirement plans? So we have, uh, you know, we've put together a, a pretty uh, comprehensive withdrawal strategy timetable. And I've actually shared it on my Twitter feed. I'd be happy to share it with, uh, with you. You can put it in the show notes, Absolutely. Um, you know, put together a, a, a Google doc. It's actually something that um, I don't know if you know, Robert from Stop Ironing Shirts, but he uh, put, put together a withdrawal simulation that I've, I've been, you know, tweaking and making my own. Um, he did it a couple of years ago. And I learned so much from that guy. I mean, he is super smart. Um, and so the, the withdrawal simulation that we have has a couple different assumptions um, and it has columns for 4% withdrawal rate, a 3.5% withdrawal rate and a 3% withdrawal rate. And based on kind of what we're projecting right now, so I'm, I'm planning on firing in uh, early 2022. My wife is probably gonna continue working for another two years. So, you know, 2024 is when we'll probably start actually drawing on our investments. And, you know, before then we'll just live off of her uh, income. So based on, you know, kind of what we're projecting, I think a 3% withdrawal rate will actually cover our annual spending in 2024. And so we're projecting $120,000 annual spending and, you know, 3% of our uh, nest egg at that point in time will be about $127,000. So we'll be spending less than 3%. Gotcha. And for listeners who don't know, how does 3% compare to conservative, liberal? I mean, where does it fall on the spectrum of withdrawal rates? Yeah, I mean, 3% is really conservative, right? right? So, you know, the the Trinity study contemplated a 4% withdrawal rate, contemplated a 30-year timeline. I'm 42. Uh, we're looking at a 50-year retirement uh, mm -hmm. horizon, all, all mm -hmm. things go well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a 3% withdrawal rate, I don't think that um, we will run out of money. We've, we've run a lot of simulations on, on fire calc and 
using personal capital and you know yep. all of those simulations kind of contemplate a four percent withdrawal rate um so you know i'm a pretty conservative guy when it comes to to you know finances and, and saving in general so we feel pretty confident that a three percent withdrawal rate should work right right i know one thing that i know about the trinity study or at least the, the famous four percent rule is that it was based on a 50 50 stock bond portfolio kind of looking at historical data so i'm just curious how are you going to potentially adjust your asset allocations over time? I know that the future's foggy. We don't have crystal balls, but if you had to guess, you know, you're, you're going to retire soon, hundred percent total market index fund. Do you think you'll stay there for the majority of your retirement or do you foresee yourself slowly shifting into something more conservative? I think I'm going to add some bonds. And so we have, we have a decent amount of cash right now um, that probably could could start to actually transfer into what our bond position should be. Um, but, you know, right now, uh, given the fact that the house is paid off, um, you know, I, I, I haven't been that convinced that bonds really make sense right now, especially given the fact that interest rates are so low, they're probably only going to go up. And if they start going up, then bonds are going to really underperform. So, uh, you know, I probably should add some bonds, but right now it hasn't been something that, and I've been really uh, chomping at the bit to do, uh, pardon the pun. So, gotcha. but no. certainly something to consider going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, that, that explanation totally makes sense. And if you have that 50 year time horizon ahead of you, like you're saying, it probably does make sense to stay more aggressive early on and to start tapering into more conservative assets as you get older. Um, now, one interesting thing I know that's another result of the Trinity study is yes. You know, if you do the 4% rule with the 50-50 stock bond allocation, a few historical 30-year periods would have failed. Uh, but so many historical 30-year periods, you would have actually ended up with more money at the end of those 30 years. Even after withdrawing money every year for your cost of living, you would end up with more money than you started. So that's the other side of the coin is, you know, if you go super conservative, that's great. You're probably going to drive your percent chance of failure down to zero and you're also going to find yourself with more money than you expected later on right you know that's what the probabilities say yeah and you know the, the withdrawal simulation that that we have uh we don't account for social security at all gotcha. but we will obviously be getting uh, a significant amount of social security and i don't know if you've ever played around with physician on fire's social security calculator but he's got a great social security calculator and and he's got this article about the various bend points and Social security is pretty complex, um, but after you, you've, you've vested for a certain period of time and you've hit these bend points, you basically get a diminishing amount of money you know, per dollar, right? Like you start off, you're getting 90 cents on the dollar, and then you're getting 32 cents on the dollar, and then you're getting 10 cents on the dollar. Um, we're, we're at that second bend point right now where mm -hmm. you know, the amount of money that we're actually putting in and that we'll get back out really cuts against continuing to work. But you know, I know that you know, when we hit age 70, uh, and we actually start drawing on social security, um, that's just going to be, you know, additional padding for our, our finances. And I feel like, you know, at a 3% withdrawal rate based on what we're projecting right now and not taking into account social security, if I feel comfortable with, with that, that once the social security comes in, that almost also cuts against the need for a bond position at this point and kind of allows us to take additional risk. Right, right. 
Uh, I haven't seen that calculator specifically from Physician on Fire, but I, 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 think, I know the, the Social Security, the tapers, how they, how they taper off over time. Um, and yeah, Physician on Fire, great blog. I've written a couple articles for, for Leaf. Seems like an awesome guy. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find that, that calculator and link it in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Uh, Landshark, I wanted to do a little transition. Now, people, when they hear that someone's retiring at 30, last week I had Purple on the podcast of, of A Purple Life. She's retiring at 30. You're She's retiring. Awesome. She, is, she is phenomenal. It was a great episode, episode 36, if anyone's interested. And uh, you know, a question that came up for her probably a similar question that you've had to field from time to time, which is you're so much younger than the traditional retiree. What are you going to do with your time? Or, or why do you want to retire? Why do you want to stop now? So when people come to you with those kind of questions, you can pretend that I'm coming to you with that question. What do you say? What, what's your thought process on, on what you'll be doing in retirement? I guess the question is, what am I not going to be doing? You know, the, I, I'm, I've never been bored. Like that's not mm-hmm. within my DNA. Like I am incapable of being bored. Like I, I find so many things interesting and, and fascinating. Um, but, you know, f- for me, um, you know, I, I just, I launched my own blog just a, about a month ago and landshark.org. And my first post was about time. And, you know, the more and more I've been thinking about it and the older and older I'm getting, I'm just kind of realizing the value of time and how it is truly finite. And regardless of how much money we have, you know, we have a finite amount of time. And, you know, I really want to make sure that I'm not squandering that time and just trading it for money, right? Like right now I'm selling my time to my clients for, for money. And, you know, that's great. It's provided me with a really, you know, great lifestyle, live in a nice community, nice house. My kids go to great schools, um, but my kids are growing up and I don't want to, I don't want to miss their childhood. And, you know, that's one of the things like we, we mentioned earlier about, about COVID and working from home. I've spent so much more time with my kids this year that, you know, typically, you know, I was out of the, out the door at 7.30 commuting, you know, downtown and then coming home by six o'clock. And so maybe I'd see my kids in the morning before I go to work. And then I'd see them for maybe an hour or so before they went to bed. And that was it. And now I get to walk my kids to school every single morning. I pick them up from school every single afternoon. I get to take them to, you know, soccer practice and baseball and to martial arts and all, all their activities. We get to go on hikes and bike rides and go swimming together. And it's just fantastic. So, you know, what I, what I plan on doing with my retirement is, you know, number one, I'm prioritizing my family time over everything else. You know, my time with my kids while they're young, my time with my wife, that to me is my number one priority. Um, Second, you know, I'm going to be focusing on my health and well-being. Um, I'm definitely feeling the effects of, of the grind of the practice of law. Uh, it's definitely a stressful um, career. I'm not saying that the law is unique in that regard. Like there's lots of stressful careers, but it's, it's, it's definitely a, a grind. So I want to focus on my health and well-being and really focus on exercise and spending time outdoors, running and hiking and biking and you know, doing all the, the great things that, that Colorado has to offer continuing to just read and learn. And then, you know, I, I do a lot of community service. I also uh, am passionate about uh, creating and making music and, and writing. So like I said, I just launched the blog. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be working on that. Um, and, you know, then we're just going to see. But one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is decompressing. Like I've been going 110%, you know, since, since I started practicing law. And it's, it's, it's time to just take some time to unwind. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I think about is work and I go to sleep and I'm thinking about work as 
uh, as I'm trying to fall asleep and I'm waking up in the middle of the night thinking about work and it, that's not a healthy way to live, you know, and I've had partners who have had heart attacks and strokes over the past, you know, couple of years and, you know, I could see that as a, something that happens to me. All right. And I just, you know, I'm not invincible. So at a certain point in time, when you've, when you've won the game, uh, you got to stop playing. And I just, I, I have enough. Like I, I believe that I have enough to sustain the lifestyle that we want to live. And I don't need to continue to add additional money, um, you know, just because I can. I really like that one, one quote you said there towards the end, which is sometimes you have to realize when you've won the game, you, you need, it's time to stop playing. And uh, you mentioned William Bernstein or Bernstein earlier, great author, in investing mind. And he's got this quote that I absolutely love, which is paraphrasing here, that the point of investing is not to maximize returns. The point of investing is to not die poor. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's a quote about risk, really. Mm -hmm. And it's a quote about, you know, you don't have to put pedal to the metal going as fast as you can, as far as you can, as long as you can, because going pedal to the metal is inherently risky. You might crash. You right. Know, but the point of these exercises we do, the point of working as a lawyer as hard and as long as you did, isn't necessarily to do it forever and become as rich as possible. There's more to life than that, right? There's more to life than just Absolutely. working your butt off. And uh, yeah, so it applies to investing. It applies to your job. It applies to everything we do. It applies to money. It applies to time. I really like that, how you're bringing it back to that finite resource that we have, time. It's one of those cliches, right? There's a lot of cliches in the personal finance and investing space. There's a lot of cliches out there on Twitter that we see day after day, time after time. Right. But some of them are just so universally true that there's a reason why it's a cliche. And the fact that time is this finite resource the most finite resource that we have. It's one of those cliches that comes up every day, but you know what? It's always true. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this, uh, this song by uh, Chris Staples and uh, it's called Halfway Over. My life is halfway over. Who knows, maybe more. I'm finally getting good at this. Wish I could live a hundred more. Nobody knows what happens next. I'm guessing this is all we get. And I just heard that and I was like, God damn, that just hit a, hit a chord. And, you know, my, my kids, they're, you know, they're in elementary school, but they are growing up fast. And like, before I know it, they're going to be in middle school, they're going to be in high school, and they're not going to want to hang out with their old man. But right now, they love hanging out with their old man. And I don't want to miss that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to spend so much time trying to become a big shot at work that I forget to spend quality time with my kids. Right. You familiar with, uh, there's a blog up there called Wait But Why. Oh, I love Wait But Why. Yeah. So, so you're probably familiar with that. It's probably one of his most famous articles that talks about, you know, how much time we get in life. And it's yeah. illustrated really well. So you can see kind of like little blocks that represent little chunks of time year by year, week by week. And I know one of the time stats that he looks at in there is how much time parents get to spend with their kids. Right. And how much of it, I think it's something something like by the time your kid turns 18 and leaves the house, the average parent will have already spent 95% of all the time they will ever spend with that child. Yeah. So so it's tough. You know, your your kids were, how old did you say, Landshark? Yeah, they're in elementary school. So elementary school. More, yeah. So, so, you know, halfway through their childhood-ish means you're probably 45 to 50% of the way of, of time you'll spend right. with them. And that's a... 
it can be sad, but it can also be a very motivating fact to to really make the most of the rest of the time that you have with them. So, yeah, I mean, I don't th- I don't doing. think it's sad at all. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it just is, right? Mm-hmm. And and yep. and the the point of of saving and investing and and kind of doing all these things is to I think prioritize your values, right? And the you know the things that are really valuable to you. So, you know, obviously, I want to spend time with my kids and and be present in their lives. You know, the flip side of it, and one of the things that I'm looking forward to in in retirement is, you know, I'm fortunate that my parents are still alive. And, you know, but the flip side of that wait, but why post is, you know, how much time do you have with, you know, your grandparents, with, with your, your mom and dad when they're, you know, entering, you know, their senior years, right? And, you know, if I had the opportunity right now to basically recapture some time with them because I'm retired, because I'm not going to be working, like what a blessing that is. And, you know, as they move on to, you know, when one of them passes and then they're just, you know, there's just one of them, you know, I can help them in that process. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have that time if I was working a nine to five Monday through Friday. Right. Like, so like, I'm really looking forward to actually not only spending time with my kids, but, you know, spending time with my parents while they're still around and you know my extended family, um, just because I have that good fortune of being able to recapture some of that time. Love it. Love it. Recapturing a resource that maybe you thought would have slipped through your fingers, but Hey, early retirement opens a lot of doors that most people assume are are closed. We got a couple options. I mean, is there anything that you wanted to talk about specifically that we haven't yet? You know, one of the things that I've been doing with with my Twitter profile that has actually kind of resonated with people, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously we've we've done very well. We're very fortunate in terms of you know how how our investments have done. Um, so one of the things that I try to do is just kind of illustrate like what exactly has happened in our finances yeah, and like the power of compound interest. And like, so some of these, some of these tweets have really um, resonated with some, you know, I'm sure other people think, you know, oh, I can't, can't relate to, you know, Landshark because, you know, my net worth is significantly higher than, than most other people that are on Twitter or whatever. But, you know, the point is that compound interest really works. Right. And if you uh, put it, to the test, like it, it will work for you. So, you know, when we started tracking our net worth and I think tracking your net worth, like if there's one piece of advice that I could give to anybody, it's the importance of tracking your net worth because once you actually, and I know you always talk about this, you know, what gets measured gets managed. When you start measuring your, your net worth, you can actually start to see the progress, right? And so, you know, we started tracking our net worth off and on in like 2008. But then we started getting really serious about it, you know, probably like 2012. Um, so it's been, been about 10 years now. So we, you know, in 2008, we, were, we had a net worth of about $300,000. And uh, that, then we had, you know, the financial collapse and all that, all that fun stuff. But we, we became millionaires, my wife and I, in, in March of 2013, right? So we saved and we invested. And we became, we had a, a million dollar net worth in March of 2013. It took us five years to get to 2 million. So January, 2018, we crossed that threshold, but it took us two and a half years to get to 3 million. So Mm. in September of 2020, we got to 3 million. We got to 4 million in April of 2021. So we, we, we made a million dollars in less than a year. And that wasn't from our income. That was, I mean, it was partially from our income, but that was also we no longer had a mortgage payment. We were throwing more money at our investments. And now we're at $4.4 million, you know, and which is remarkable. We're up 25% for the year. We've made $875,000 this year. 
in our you know investment accounts, including our what we've actually saved and, and invested. But you know, you you look at how that actually charts out, and it's the snowball. It starts rolling, mm -hmm. and it's taken care of itself. And now, when we look at our our finances, you know, I feel comfortable and we're making really good money at work. You know, my wife is making good money and I'm, I became a partner, you know, several years ago, but, and that, that really kind of added fuel to the fire in terms of just our earnings. Um, but, and, you know, and this year we're going to earn $600,000 in W2 income, which is a lot of money, Yeah, but sure. we're, I'm going to walk away from that. Right. Um, and I feel comfortable walking away from that because our investments are making more than that which is crazy that, you know, once that snowball just takes over. So like if there's, you know, one piece of advice in, in addition to just the importance of tracking your net worth so you can actually see it and visualize it. And we track it on a monthly basis and on an annual basis because monthly is great to know where you are. Annuals, we start really, wow, like look at where I was five years ago. Uh, but once that snowball starts rolling, you know, get that investment account growing as early as possible. I wish I started earlier. Um, you know, I still started early enough, but you know, had I started earlier, it's, it's, you know, you can only imagine where it would be at this point. So, you know, start early, invest regularly, invest often. Um, you'll thank yourself later. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. I am a huge proponent of tracking net worth. I track my net worth every month like you do. And it is fun to zoom out and look at month by month or year by year and see the progress that you've made over time. You know, I right now am close to where you were in 2008, and it's exciting to think of what the next decade could bring. And even though Landshark, I mean, you, you made a good point there where you're saying, you know, well, maybe the average listener, the average reader on Twitter can't quite relate because their W-2 income isn't five or 600 grand like, like yours is. However, I think the average listener or reader should relate to the fact that you know, how you went from one to two to three to four million in whatever it was, you know, five years, three years, two years, one year. Well, they, they might not be making million dollar jumps, but they would be making quarter million or half million dollar jumps in those same kind of time periods, right? Sure. Maybe yeah, someone, they'd, they'd go from a quarter million, they'd get their first quarter million in five and their next quarter million in three and the next one in two and the next one in one. It's the same exact idea. It's just you scale it based on your income and how much you're investing. Right, right. And you know, I, I wasn't earning this this money the entire time of my career. Sure. Right, like sure. you know, I started as a lawyer. I was making you know under a hundred thousand dollars when I first started out, and you know, it started to grow, um, which is still you know a significant amount of money. But you know, my wife and I were not uh, earning you know, over $200,000 for a, a decent chunk of our marriage. And then it started growing. And I know we just got more serious about investing and throwing the money at the mortgage and throwing the money at our retirement accounts and throwing the money at our brokerage account. And, and it just starts snowballing. Out of curiosity, maybe you know this for sure, because I mean, you know, I know you've kept a lot of data in your past, or maybe you just have an educated guess. How much of your total portfolio right now can you attribute to actual investing principle versus how much of it can you attribute to that principle growing or, you know, interest returns? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that, but I guess what I could tell you is how much money we have earned in our careers sure, versus yeah. what our, our, our portfolio is worth now. Yeah. Right? That's a great so, stat. Yeah. Go for yeah, it. And th this is something that I'm probably going to uh, turn into a blog post just based on, 
you know, uh, thinking about the, the big picture, right? Like mm-hmm. in your entire life, like how much are you going to earn, right? And in your entire life, how much are you going to spend? How much right. do you need, right? And so, you know, that was one of the things that I was looking at when we were putting together our, our withdrawal uh, simulation is, you know, we're, we're factoring in starting at $120,000 of annual spending, indexing that for inflation, figuring a 50 to 60 year timeline, like how much money do we actually need um, just with interest compounding over time. And, you know, that, that number, assuming that we, we live to age a uh, hundred, you know, we need 12 million bucks. <laughs> All right. Like that's, that's $120,000 at 2% interest starting in 2024 uh, going until 2079, mm-hmm. 12, 12 million bucks. Right. And like how much are your investments actually going to cover? So, you know, those are the kind of things that I've been thinking about. So, you know, right now our net worth is about $4.4 million. Mm-hmm. What we have earned in our careers between the two of us um, is $4.4 million. Oh, wow. So one to one. One to one ratio. Now that's not including uh, what we've what we've earned in 2021 so that's through 2020 so that's a little skewed you yeah. know if you factor in you know what we've what we're going to earn this year we're going to earn about six hundred thousand dollars so it's we'll we'll earn five million dollars say right. but right um that also doesn't doesn't include you know what we're going to earn for the balance of the year and invest right but yep. you know right now um we're you know basically one-to-one and i mean that's a pretty remarkable thing if you think about it because you know, you got to spend some money to pay for your expenses. Sure. You're not typically saving hundred percent of, of your money, but you know, you invest that money over time, you know, at some point that Delta becomes smaller and smaller and you're not, right. you know, and I never had like one of those super high savings rates, right? Like I, I am not frugal. I am <laughs> not one of those like people who were saving, you know, 50% of our yeah. income, 60% yeah. of our income until we started making like significant money where all of a sudden, because we weren't inflating our lifestyle, then we got to a big savings rate. But in the beginning, we had a 10% savings rate, 15% savings rate, 20% savings rate, which is still bigger than, you know, what most the average American is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in the, in the fire community, like that's nothing, right? Like, oh, you're only saving 20% of your, your income. You're, you're a spendthrift. That, you know, the, the investments at a certain point in time start doing the work for you. And that's why we invest, right? That's why we want to put our dollars to work. And we hope that the investments behave like they have in the past and our dollars start to start to multiply onto themselves. Um, you know, younger people listen to this. I, I can tell you my, there's a name for that, that stat that you actually gave us, Landshark. I think budgets are sexy. They wrote an article about it once upon a time, which is your, you know, all the money you've ever earned, uh, or maybe it's what your total net worth is today divided by all the money you've ever earned. And if it's over the one, you know, yours is one right now. The number's over one, you're in a pretty good spot. And if you're under one, well, most people are there, especially when they're young. I think mine right now is something like 0.6. It's getting better. It's getting better. But the, the idea there is that when you're a young person, there's plenty of things to spend money on. You might go into debt because of college or a car or a house. And you're not earning a ton of money, which means you're not saving a ton of money. So your net worth might only be $50,000, even though over your career, you've earned 
$200,000. Well, your ratio there is one in four, 0.35. Not great. But over time, the compounding interest in the numerator of your net worth, if you've been investing your money, that compounding interest really starts to work for you, especially if you've been doing it for, you know, 15, 20 years like you have or, or 12 years seriously. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at things. And I hadn't really thought about it too much until right now. And I'm definitely going to dive into that a little deeper. And, and I am curious now to, to go back in time and, and look at everything that we've actually saved and invested. You know, we've changed uh, brokerages uh, periodically, not periodically, but we've, we've changed a couple of times. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know if I have records going back. You know, I wasn't necessarily a meticulous record keeper early on. Now right. I'm a little more right. anal about it. Out of curiosity, so. who do you do your investing through right now? Uh, so, you know, we've got um, Vanguard accounts, we've got Fidelity accounts, then we've got our 401k accounts with whoever our employers decide to have them through. But most of our money is in Vanguard and, and a little bit is in Fidelity. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, oh, I, I happened to find it. I did a little Googling in the background here. It might be rude of me to Google while podcasting, but- uh, How dare you? <laughs> Jay Money over at Budgets Are Sexy, he calls it your lifetime wealth ratio. And I think it was, uh, looks like it was something he was throwing around the community in 20, mid 2020 teens, 2015 or so. Your lifetime wealth ratio is your net worth divided by your lifetime income. And if you can get it above one, you're probably in a pretty good spot. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to have yeah. to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. And, and uh, listeners out there, it's a good thing for you to calculate too. Just to think about how many dollars have I earned in my life? How much of my time have I traded for dollars in my life versus what do I have to show for it today? It, it'll open your eyes uh, in some ways and good, in some ways bad, but it might light that fire underneath you to, to turn the ship around as it were. It's also important to, to know, like, you know, how much money you actually need. And, you know, that's one of the things that, um, you know, your money or your life, that book is great about, you know, in terms of, you know, trading your time, your life energy for money. Um, and, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, what exactly are you working for? And, you know, that's one of the, the big things about, um, I think, the FIRE community that has, has got me thinking about you know, things recently about, you know, why, why continue to work when you've won the game? Why continue to trade my time? you know, which is the only time that I've got uh, for additional money, you know, that that life energy is irreplaceable, right? And, you know, it would just be so much better to do that, to spend that time and life energy on things other than work, right? Work right. at my nine to five. So if you haven't read that book, I, I highly recommend it. It's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one that I haven't read, even though I have I've read chapters and excerpts from it, some of which actually inspired some of my blog articles. There's one concept from the book called The Fulfillment Curve. I don't know if you remember that yeah. one. And it, it, this fulfillment curve, it essentially says uh, more stuff does equal more happiness up until a point. And then after that point, more stuff equals less happiness. Right. And, and you know, the way to think about it is if you're, if you're homeless on the streets, well, some more money and some more stuff is going to significantly make you happier and increase your, your quality of life. But if you have everything that you need and you're comfortable and you're enjoying yourself, getting a second and third and fourth car, 
let's say, right. it's not going to make you any happier. If anything, it's just going to cause you headaches. Right. So that's the idea that many people understand, but many people also don't understand. Many Americans, especially, I hate to say it, we're kind of a consumer-driven society. We love our stuff. And sometimes we surround ourselves with so much stuff that it drives us that shit crazy, even when we don't realize it. You know, we don't realize that our own property is, is driving us up the wall. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got the whole like hedonic uh, adaptation uh, yeah, sure. you know, concept where, you know, oh, this thing that I'm going to be buying is going to bring me so much happiness. You get it. And then you're like, well, it doesn't bring me the happiness that it, it did when I first bought it. So I need to go buy something else. Right. And so in your money or your life, another thing that they talk about in, in that same uh, concept of the fulfillment curve is, you know, with each purchase that you're making, you know, is it actually bringing you something of, of value, you know, is it actually enriching your life? Is it actually bringing you joy? Is it actually giving you what it's worth you to exchange your precious life energy for, right? And, you know, when you think about it that way, and it's the same kind of concept of like opportunity costs, right? So like, you know, a dollar today is a dollar 37 actually because of taxes and then it's $10 in you know, 20, 30 years, whatever it's going to be, you know, like, is it worth the exchange? And, mm -hmm. you know, that that's not you know, philosophy for, for becoming a miser or being, you know, uh, a Scrooge about anything, but, you know, you just want to think about, you know, you want to be mindful about the, the way that you spend your money and, and, you know, make sure that you're spending it in a way that is actually bringing you the proper amount of value that it should. And there's nothing wrong with spending money. I mean, if, if you want to spend money, I mean, we're like what we're doing right now in terms of, you know, factoring in $120,000 of 3% withdrawal rate from our, um, from our investments, you know, that would be a fat fire lifestyle, I think, by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, that's a lot of spending. You know, we certainly don't consider ourselves frugal. You know, mm -hmm. we live in a nice area. Our kids go to good schools. We like to go on nice vacations, but that's something that we really value. So I don't mind spending a lot of money on a really nice vacation because it's something that our family really appreciates. Right. So trade your time, trade your life energy for stuff that really matters to you. And when Absolutely. you start thinking of trade in those units, you know, everybody thinks of trades maybe in units of dollars. Okay, that's very understandable. Well, if you change your units from dollars to hours or from dollars to life energy, however you want to measure that, all of a sudden these trades might look a little bit different to you. And that's the idea that these authors like Vicki Robin, Your Money, Your Life, that's what she's trying to tell us. And it's, it's a great mindset to have. It's something that has helped me out a lot over the last, say, five, six, seven years for sure. Absolutely. I'm trying to instill that a little bit in, in my kids. Mm -hmm. uh, although right now, you know, they are, uh, you know, they are like peak video game age, right? Where they're just like totally into it. And, you know, now there's all these in-app purchases that you could do in Roblox and Minecraft and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, they just want it. Right. And I, I try to sure. tell them, like, do sure. you really want to spend your money on that? Like, and, I, and I'm making them actually spend their own money, right? Like they've got a bank mm -hmm. of mom and dad and, you know, Mr. Money Mustache has, has done a, a blog post about the bank of mom and dad and a kind of a way of uh, teaching your kids, you know, the value of money and that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees and that it's not something that you should just waste, right? Like, but you can right. spend it, um, but you got to be spending, spending it mindfully, right? And, and on things that are actually going to, going to bring you value. It's a little tar hard to instill that, that lesson on uh, elementary school age kids, but I'm trying. Totally. It totally is. And it's, at least from my own experience of having been a kid once, and it's the lesson that might not sink in at 12, 
but there will come a time later in life when you're thinking back, when, when they'll be thinking back on these lessons that you've instilled in them, and it'll click so much easier for them because they'd heard it before than it might for someone who had never heard that lesson before. At least that's the way, so. a lot of, that's the way a lot of lessons have worked for me, right? I didn't listen when I was 10 or 14, or, but then sometime in my 20s, I said, ah, ha, 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 that's what was going on there. Now I get it. It, it makes a lot more sense. Well, let's go into the famous best interest podcast rapid fire questions. How about Sounds that? Sounds good. Okay. All right. So the first one is, uh, what's the last material object or personal luxury that you spent $100 or more on? I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to do two. Perfect. Bought a new mountain bike. It's fantastic. My, my family goes on a lot of bike rides together. So living here in Colorado, you got to have a nice mountain bike. So I love it. It gets a lot of use. Cool. Second thing is, it's uh, I bought a vintage 1964 Rogers Tower drum set, and it's just this kick-ass drum set from the 60s it sounds and looks beautiful and I told my wife uh during COVID I was like I gotta buy this drum set and she's like whatever man like it's your money (laughs) worked hard for it you mentioned earlier actually that you enjoyed music and that in retirement you'd be doing more more music are you a a drummer primarily uh I play a little bit of everything but yeah drums are my my main instrument very cool. Are you, you playing any bands or, or how do you, how do you express your musicality? I have, uh, you know, as a practicing lawyer, I don't really have the amount of time that I'd like to, to be in a band, uh, right now. I've mm-hmm. got, I've got a couple of people that I like to play with. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm going to be spending a lot more time on in retirement for sure. Nice. Uh, next question what's one good habit that you're trying to form or a bad habit that you're trying to break? As a lawyer, I'm always on call. I work ridiculous hours. And as I'm nearing retirement, I'm trying to say no more and set boundaries. I'm struggling with that personally, especially in this content creation space where there's this like little hidden, hidden idea that saying yes to everything is how you get ahead that makes sense oh yeah you know you just got you got to do everything you got to meet everybody you got to accept every offer you got to go on every podcast you got to accept every guest post at some point it's like i am driving myself crazy i've got to start saying no you know i think there's like the the yin and yang of life right like i mean Mm -hmm. there there are self-help books about right uh, you know saying yes to everything and then there's self-help books about saying no to everything right and like what's the right answer and i think it depends, right? Like it depends on kind of where you are in your life and where you are in, in whatever the phase is of your business or your, your schooling or, you know, your career. Uh, you know, maybe there's a time to say yes to everything. And then maybe there's a time to dial it back and say no. And I've been saying yes to everything for a long period of time. And now it's time to pivot and to say no and to set those boundaries. But for you, you're, you're launching the best interest. You're growing this business. Maybe it's appropriate to say yes. And then, you know, at a certain point in time, dial it back and then say right. no. Yeah, that's a good point good thing to think about uh next one next question what's your favorite financial tool or app or service that you use and why do you like it so j-rod mentioned this in a previous episode of your of your podcast but it's my net worth spreadsheet it's simple it's elegant and it works you know i love mint and uh personal capital but you know this spreadsheet easily lets you see your monthly and annual net worth performance um, I use it regularly and it's just worked for me. Excellent. And, and one more time, is, is that available to a listener if they wanted to download their own blank copy of it or, or yeah. where'd you? Yeah, I've got a, a shareable version on, on Google Drive. I'll, cool. I'll 
make sure that you get a, a, a link to it and you can link it in the show notes. Wonderful, wonderful. And then before we get to the last question, I, I did ping our, our Twitter friends before we hopped on live here. And I said, hey, everybody, anybody got a question for Landshark? We, we got some nice comments. We got, you know, Landshark is on a tour from Seafire Sim. Uh, we got the Landshark from Justin. You know, people just giving you the, they, the, the fans are coming out. All right, know, yeah. The groupies. Support. But we did have one interesting uh, question, actually, from uh, The Art of Purpose, Creation 24-7, all 65 followers. He's coming down to chat with us. He was on the podcast before. He's a good guy. So his question for you, Landshark, is how would you invest $10,000 given to you right now, but hard mode, no index funds? You're not allowed to say index funds. How would you invest $10,000 right now? Uh, VTI, ETF. It's an ETF. <laughs> is, that a, is that cheating? Is that, is that an index ETF? It's not an index fund, man. It's an ETF. It's an exchange traded fund. <laughs> I'm a lawyer, man. I, 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 I look for the technicalities there and you know, this, he said no index funds. I mean, this is ob objection. I'm going to throw this case out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No ETFs, no index funds. Uh, oh, how about this one, know. one company, pick a, pick a single company stock or pick a single, uh, crypto coin, pick, uh, pick something else, something, something else. I, I, I'd have to go with, uh, Tesla because they're, they're just the game changers out there. And nice. I feel like Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Google, they've already taken over the world, but mm -hmm. Tesla is yet to take over the world. They're on on the march yep um but you know with with the capabilities of you know just revolutionizing the auto industry and the solar interests and and just you know what elon musk is doing i think um they're going to be the game changers going forward it's great logic totally makes sense to me but don't put ten thousand dollars into tesla that's not investment <laughs> advice Agreed. That's a good caveat. And, and agreed with that. It's a cool company. I'm excited to watch them grow. I'm probably, I'm excited to get one myself, I hope one day. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have the uh, cojones as it were to believe that they are underpriced right now relative to where they'll be. Right. I mean, they're, they're already priced as if they're a huge company because they are, but uh, they might be overpriced. Hate to hate to say it. We'll we'll see what the future brings. They might be underpriced. They might be exactly, and, and don't I don't have the expertise to to differentiate those two. That's why I just get my my return in you know BTSAX. I get my chunk of them and uh -huh. let the market decide because picking right. individual stocks is a loser's game. You know you're yep. going to lose. Yep. You just don't know. Very true. Very true. And that brings us to the last rapid fire question, Landshark. If we gave you a billboard, what message would you put on that billboard to share with the world? If your kids ever ask you to play with them, say yes. That is a very nice message. Landshark, if anybody wants to reach out to you, if they want to if they download your spreadsheet and want to ask you a question about it, or if they just want to connect with you and pick your brain, how can these people reach you? Yeah, so check out my new blog, which is landshark.org. You can also reach me on Twitter at uh, I am Landshark. Um, I'm also on Facebook at I am Landshark. So. Very cool. All of those links and all the other links we talked about today will be in the show notes. And Landshark, thank you very much for coming on to the Best Interest Podcast tonight. It was great talking with you. 
Thanks, Jesse. It was a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. All right, a little more bad audio from me. Apologies for that. But I want to give a huge thank you again to Landshark. Thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast today, Landshark. Listeners, if you want to reach out to the Landshark, I've included all of his links in the show notes. If you want to reach out to me, my email is jesse at bestinterest.blog, or you can follow me on Twitter, where my username is bestinterest underscore jc. We can continue to invest in one another because, as Ben Franklin said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. And thank you all for listening to this episode number 37 of the Best Interest Podcast.